the first week, Nate Mirza was here. He, uh, he's a native-born Iranian. He talked about, um, he focused on the issue of the unevangelized peoples of the world, that there are still gobs and gobs of peoples, that is, ethno-linguistic groups of human beings that have no witness for the gospel at all among them, and that that's an issue for us. If the Great Commission is global, if it's to make disciples among all peoples, then every group of people who hasn't heard needs to. And it's urgent. The second week, Manohar James, a native of central India, came here, a friend of mine, and he talked about the issue of global persecution. That is, that um, Christians all over the world are persecuted for being Christians, um, and that that is not getting better. It's getting worse. The 20th century was the worst, cent- worst full century in the history of humanity on that, and the 21st century is heading up to be even worse. Um, but what I want to do today, and I'm going to come back around to all of that stuff, but I want to start with um, what we call the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's Gospel, and I want to look at it, um, and I want to ask the question to start with, why did Jesus say it this way? Okay? So let me read it first. Um, the 11, because sometimes we just start at verse 19. I think it's important to read the whole thing. The 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go, and when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, one of the things that we often do as evangelicals when we talk about the Great Commission is we start in verse 19 and we only quote verse 19. And we say, Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. Period. We stop right there. And there's a bunch of parts that we don't like to quote, especially the part where it says, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded because we frankly don't want to do that ourselves. <laughs> and so, you know, that's a good part to leave out. We do like the I'll be with you to the very end of the age part. Um, but it's important to recognize that this command, this commission to go and make disciples of all nations is bookended by two sayings about why it's feasible. The first is, Jesus says, listen, all authority, all of it that exists in both heaven and on earth has been given to me, he said. Remember, the Great Commission starts with therefore, right? Therefore, go and make disciples. And then he says, and I'll be with you the very end of the age. Now, why does he have to say those two things, right? Well, it's right there in the passage. It says they worshiped him, and then what does it say? But some doubted, right? He was dealing with people who were going to doubt, and the reality is, is that that's pretty much human nature on this thing, and people were going to doubt for the whole gamut of the church, aren't they? And one of the things Jesus also knew, being, you know, sovereign and all that, is that it was not going to be very long before people told them they did not have the authority to make disciples of all nations, and that if they proceeded to continue to try to do it, the people in the government was going to be against them, Right? I mean, if you think about the book of Acts, if you've read it in the Bible, that's the, Bible, that's the book that comes right after the Gospels, the four Gospels. It's the story of the church getting off to a start. And it's not the, but the third page, right? Chapter four, where the main speakers get pulled aside by the governmental authorities and told, what, what are they told? You don't have the authority to do this. Right? Chapter four. And chapter five, verse 20, what does Peter say back? He says, listen, you guys, listen, you can tell us we don't have the authority, but I just have to tell you, um, 
you're asking me to make a decision between taking your authority or taking God's authority. There's an authority conflict here. And frankly, I'm just going to have to go with God on this one. And so, and you see, Peter knew when he made that decision that they were going to be against him. And therefore, it was important that Jesus said what? That he was going to be with him. You see, these phrases that bookend the Great Commission are significant because it wasn't until chapter 8, right, that they start killing people. Three more pages, right? And Stephen gets killed for speaking the gospel to the religious authorities who are also the governmental authorities. And he gets killed. What's happened? And what happens? And they go out, they start putting men and women in prison, and people start getting spread all throughout the countryside, right? And the gospel actually spreads. And it's the first time in the history of the church where God demonstrates that persecution and evangelization are actually related. It's true, um, I think it was what Nate said, is that if you don't obey Acts 1-8, you get Acts 8-1, right? Because Acts 1-8 is, you're going to be my witnesses in, in Jerusalem and then Judea, Samaria, to the very ends of the earth. And then in 8-1, they get pushed out through persecution. I'm not sure that that was a punishment. That may just have been the plan all along. Because it actually says in Acts 8.1 that when they ran, it says they ran to Judea and then to Samaria. Like you're supposed to pick up on that, right? And go, oh yeah, that's just what he said was going to happen. But he did it through suffering and pain, right? Now, here's the the reason why I bring that up. The basic dynamic of the mission that Jesus has given us has not changed at all. Um, you and I are going to be told that we do not have the authority to attempt to persuade people to become disciples of Jesus, to be initiated into that by being baptized in his name in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and to then teach them to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. You and I are going to be told that we do not have the authority to do that. And sometimes it will be done through soft authority, where we will be intellectually bullied and told we can't do that. And sometimes it will be through hard authority, with bombs and guns and fire and so on. But it will be done. We will be told we do not have the authority, and we will be told that if you persist in doing this, we will not be with you. And therefore, it is continually relevant that Jesus would say at the beginning of this mission, all of the authority in heaven and earth is mine. And on the basis of that, I'm telling you to go and make disciples of all nations. And whatever they do, whether with you or not, I am going to be with you to the very end. There is no expiration on this. Now, um, therefore, there is a constant dynamic in the Christian life of that we have a job to do. There's going to be a price to pay for it, and the two are related problems. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to talk about the job, I want to talk about the price, and then I want to talk about very, very specific ways in which you and I can engage. Okay? And you, will, you may not like some of this, and— That's just how you feel probably about all sermons, so that's okay. Um, So first, um, the situation is pretty much exactly the same. We have the same mission, and we're going to face the same resistance. And so we've got to first get clear in our minds that we have a job to do, okay? 
We is intentional there. We talk about the great commission, but if I asked you what does commission mean, what would you say? You know, what's well, kind of like an officer commission, right? You kind of get, well, okay, but break the word down. Commission, like the word means a mission given to more than one person. That's what the word means. A commission, a commissioning, a commissioning ceremony, right, to a whole missions team, or to, it's to a group of people. The mission is shared by all of these people. The reason we call it the Great Commission, and that's a good name for it, is because it's great, but also because it is a commission. It is given to all of them and to the whole of the church. It's, it, this mission does not belong to pastors or missionaries. This belongs to the co. It belongs to, in 1 Corinthians 12, the body. It belongs to everybody. It is your mission in the world. It's our mission. We share equally with all Christians, but we share it equally with all Christians. Right? Um, now, Nate Mirza, one of the things he talked about when he was here was he said that um, one of the issues with the Great Commission is, is that um, there is a specific area of the world that is referred to by missions people as the 1040 window. That is 10 and 40 degrees north latitude. Um, that is the most unreached. Now, here's what I mean by, when I say unreached, here's what I mean. It, unreached means there is no witness for the gospel in that culture or in that ethno-linguistic group, right? So think about it this way. If somebody in Madison does not want to believe the gospel, it's probably because they don't want to, right? We annoy them all the time. And we, and we are called to continue to seek to persuade people in our lives who do not believe the gospel as lovingly and carefully as we can, right? That's— con we're, we still do that, but most people in Madison have, have heard this message. We're seeking to make it more credible and more clear. And, but there are places where they have never even heard of Jesus at all. There's no Bible in their language. There's nobody telling them about it, either foreign or indigenous. None. And part of our job is, is to do that. 97% um, of the world's unreached people live in that block. Now, before I say a couple words about that, I, I want to I come to this whole evangelism thing because here's the, here's the issue. We all live in Madison, right? We all live in Madison. And we know that the whole idea of missions, that is global evangelization, is not generally celebrated as an endeavor. And that's not just true outside the church, that's true inside the church. And so there's, there's an external objection, which is basically that the whole, this whole idea of evangelism is morally wrong. You should not be trying to convince other people to believe your religion, okay? That just creates problems, it creates fighting, it creates small-mindedness, and if you really—you you do that, you might say it's for these high-minded religious reasons, but it's probably coming from ignorance or nationalism or xenophobia or narrow-mindedness or naivety or some— imperialism or lack of sophistication or probably racism and homophobia. I mean, it's probably coming from something a little ugly, and you just need to back off. You just need to back off. And, um, and we, we understand where that's coming from historically, right? Now, logically, it's not a very good argument, but historically, we, it's— we understand that, right? There's been stuff that's happened, and that, and when we look at people say, look, that's just going to be bad stuff, we can look historically and say, I understand where you're coming from. I totally understand where you're coming from. But 
that doesn't mean that I can just change my, change what Jesus told us to do. But, but it's, see, it's not just that issue. It, there's the internal objection too. And there's a lot of people in the church, and even in the evangelical church, who are like, you know what? Um, yeah, there's the Great Commission. We should do that. We should do that. But um, God is on a mission in the world, and it's to reweave shalom, peaceful justice stuff. And, and God is redeeming the world. And so, um, yeah, preaching the gospel is... God's working God's mission, but you know, so is fighting sex trafficking, and so is coming up with policies that engage in economic or um, environmental um, sustainability, and so are uh, helping single mothers. And so, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, working in inner city schools and trying to make sure that those educate kids well. I mean, all of this is the reweaving of shalom. It's all seeking justice in the world. And isn't that what you read the whole Testament? Is that what it's constantly saying? Do justice, do the right thing. Li- I mean, be a people in which I'm king. And that means doing the right things. I mean, shouldn't we focus on the good? And isn't that holistically Christian? Shouldn't we be more holistic? Right? I, have you heard that? That's, that, I mean, that's not stupid, is it? I mean, I mean, that has a certain amount of freight to it, both logically and definitely emotionally, right? Um, and so, you, you got to figure out what we're going to do with that, right? Both the external objection and the internal objection. And, and here, I want to I say just a couple words about, now those are both other sermons, aren't they? Those are whole sermons. But, let me just say this about the internal objection for the moment. Um, that is built on a confusion of what we call the missio dei, that is the mission of God, and the commission of Jesus, what Jesus actually told us to do. Okay? And that's a very dangerous confusion to make, to take what God has said his mission is, and to say, well, if it's God's mission, then it's our mission. Rather than to do the thing that Jesus told us to do. Right? I mean, how many, how many of you who are parents would accept if you told your kids to do something and they didn't do it, but they said, Daddy, I was all about what you're about. Right? So, like, my kids know that I don't, I can be a little stingy financially sometimes, but if I told my kid to go in the store and buy something, they came back and they're like, Daddy, I didn't buy it, but I just know that you are careful with money. You're all about being careful with money. You think people should be careful with their money, not just spend it on whatever. So I just didn't, I didn't buy what you told me to. Because I, and I'm doing, I'm, I'm living out your mission. I'd be like, I told you to buy it. It's, now listen, I'm not saying we should not participate in the overall mission of God, particularly in seeking justice. However, when you read the Bible, the Bible is very clear that there are different appointed times in which God does things. There's some things that he has people do, and there's other things he actually gets offended when people try to do them for him. I mean, you've read in those passages. There's lots of passages where people go out to do something. He's like, no, you're not going to do it. I'm doing it. And he's actually, he's actually like, I, I won't let you accomplish it. I'm going to accomplish it for myself. And they're at specific times where God will say, yeah, I know you want to do that. That's a good idea. We're not doing it. I'm doing it at this time. And see, it can be a very dangerous thing to just say, what we know is that God wants to bring apart an e-utopia, the good world, and therefore we're going to bring it about. That's what Christianity is all about. That is a very dangerous and very foolish ideology. It is good to do good things, but you cannot do them as a higher priority than the things Jesus actually told you to do. Right? You remember back when I was, I, there, I was preaching about politics in a sermon, and I said, civility precedes outcome. 
So you may want this public policy, and you might know that's what justice is, and that's what God wants, but you cannot be uncivil and slander another person because it works for you to get your outcome because what Jesus told you to do is love your neighbor. And we, what you're working for is public justice. You, you don't get to switch those. You have to do what Jesus told you to do and then work for the things you think, you, you think God would be for. That's also, that's not just true in politics, that's true in the mission. And what, what are, what's the church's job? What are we here to do? Well, we're here first and foremost to do the things Jesus told us to do. And that is the evangelization of all nations, making disciples among all peoples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything he's commanded us. Now, along the way, we are going to act like Christians. And the effect of the church and the effect of Christians is going to affect the world positively if we're really believing the gospel and really living out our faith sacrificially and lovingly. And the result is going to be wiser voting and better public policies and people helping other people and reaching out to their neighbors and feeding the hungry and all that stuff. That is going to happen, and it's going to happen better than it's ever happened, but it's, go it's going to be the effect of the church and the effect of Christians. It is not the mission of the church. It isn't. And so we need to do what Peter told Paul to do in the book of Galatians when he said, you go, you preach the gospel, and do not forget about the widows, and do not forget about the poor. And Paul said, Paul's response basically was, no, duh. He, he says, the very thing I was eager to do, right? That's, that's nice for no duh. And so we, we, listen, we cannot forget the poor, and we cannot forget the social implications of the gospel, and we cannot forget to be engaged in our community, and we have to love our city, but we cannot confuse that with the mission because we have to do the thing Jesus told us to do, not the thing that we generally think Jesus would basically be in favor of, and our political party is advocating for it. Does that make sense? Okay, then I'll get off of that. And so when you get to the mission, Jesus says, listen, because I have all the authority in heaven and earth, here's what I'm telling you to do. Go and make disciples. That's the justification so that when you get to Acts 5.20, when they tell the apostles, the government tells the apostles, you can't do this. They remember what Jesus said and said, no, 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 no. Jesus said he had all the authority. And therefore, you actually don't have the authority to tell me what not to do this. And, and think about this. That is the only thing Jesus said commanded us to do as the highest authority, with all of his authority, right? So you might not want to pay a particular tax that you hate, right? Like, who hates their Madison property tax? Hmm, I do. But Jesus did not say that all authority in heaven and earth was given to him, and therefore I don't have to pay him property taxes, did he? No. No, he just said, based on his absolute authority, I have the right and the responsibility and the mission to make disciples of all nations. And the government cannot tell me I can't do that, right? But it can tell me I cannot save that money and buy a car, Right? Okay. I said I'd get off that, didn't I? All right. Now, here's, here's one of the issues, okay? Now, if that's the case, we send out missionaries too, right? We send out missionaries, lots of missionaries. That's great. Here's the thing. You see that place? What that's the most unreached section of the world. What percentage of missionaries do you think live there? 
It's like three billion people. Three percent. Ninety-seven percent of the most unreached people in the entire world live there. We're evangelicals. We're so excited about missions. And what percentage of our missionaries actually go there and live there? And our missionaries, they're like our varsity athletes, right? Like, our, our missionaries are not like big spiritual dummies that just want to live abroad and eat crepes in France, okay? That's not who they are. I mean, these are people who care, but they don't go here. Why? Okay, now granted, the languages there are hard to speak. <laughs> I mean, honestly, like, I would so much rather go to Guatemala and like brush up on my Spanish, okay? Like, it, there's probably some of that. But here's why. I think that the—here's it. The issue of a lack of evangelization and the issue of persecution are related. Why don't people go there? Because they kill you there. That's why. They kill you there. And you can't say anything. Or, and so people don't—who wants to be a missionary where you can't mission? Right? So who wants to go there? Nobody. Apparently 3%. But you see, this is an issue, right? This is an issue. Because we can't, we can't let the persecution window dictate the evangelization window because they're the same! Which is why we have got to get straight that we have a mission and we are going to pay a price for that mission. We are going to pay a price for that mission. Um, this week, this week in Newsweek, there's an article called Christophobia, which covers the rapid increase of terrorist attacks on Christians. Now that's, I'm not talking about martyrdom. I'm only talking about terrorist attacks. That's all this article talked about, was terrorist attacks. That's it. There's another 100,000 Christians that die on top of this. This is just terrorist attacks. And she, she notes, um, that Terrorist attacks against Christians are up 309% from 2003 to 2010. And listen, there were plenty of attacks in 2003. But they're still up 309%. And listen, Newsweek is not generally thought of as the, you know, push the Christian bus periodical, okay? But, there, but there's this recognition like this week in Nigeria, there's more killings. This week. Right? The stuff Manohar said last week is already out of date for Nigeria. And, and, and this is—the the problem here is that there's so much persecution that is not classified as persecution because it doesn't look like persecution. But there's an enormous amount of discrimination that happens all over the world because people don't want to do commerce with Christians. They don't want to— Every time I go to India, I run into that. They're, they're like, well, no, n nobody's gotten beaten up recently, but we can't get somebody to fix our plumbing. You know, we can't—there are these problems just because we're Christians. And one of the things that, therefore, we need to recognize—and and we need to recognize this for ourselves and for our global brothers and sisters— is that it, when you read the Bible, religious freedom is not the normal. Persecution is the normal. And we need to recognize that. Because it's very easy for us to live in our bubble and be like, oh yeah, isn't everybody free religiously? And Christians are the majority, and we don't get persecuted. No, in the Bible, persecution is the norm. Matthew—this is—okay, so this passage comes before anybody ever persecuted anybody f that followed Jesus. 
The Beatitudes, right? But what does Jesus say at the end of the Beatitudes? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Then he goes on. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's before there's any persecution. John 15, he says this. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. Application? If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Later on in his ministry, in 2 Timothy 3, this is just before he dies. He goes, look look guys, remember the words I spoke to you. I'm sorry. He says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, that is, really obeys everything he commanded and seeks to make disciples of all nations, anybody who really wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That is a Bible promise, okay? This, this is didactic teaching. He's saying things that he believes are spiritually factual here. And what he's saying is, if you seek to be holistically, Christianly godly, you will be persecuted. And then there's all kinds of passages that are a little more obscure. They don't say, you're going to be persecuted, hello, wake up. But they assume it every, all over the Bible. It's assumed everywhere. Look at 1 Peter 2, 11 and 15. Dear friends, I urge you, as aliens and strangers in the world, abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Now, what is that all about? Right? What he's, here's, here's what he's saying. Listen, you are the temple of God, right? The whole passage, you're the temple of God. God's building this temple, and you're the church. Will, and then what does he say? He basically says, look, listen, people are going to be hard on you. <laughs> people are going to be really hard on you. They're not going to like you, and they're going to slander you, and they're going to attack you, and here's, here's what you need to know. When the terrorist impulse emerges that you are entitled to fight back and to disobey the government and to hurt the people who hurt you, which is universally human, universally human, he says, this is what you do. You submit to every governing and ruling authority And you silence the foolish and ignorant talk of the people attacking you by how well you live, not by how many people you can kill or fight. the The only authorized mechanism of Christian terrorism is good, beautiful gospel living. That's it. That's all we got, guys. It's not C4. But it's what— and listen— you should have known this when you got into the religion that had the Savior that died, okay? You should have known that this is basically how it was going to roll, okay? But that's what he says. He says, and, and listen, this isn't even about persecution. I mean, that's not the focus of the passage. But you see what he's saying? He's saying, listen, you're going to feel entitled to fight back and to strike out and to disobey the government. You can't. 
Even that government that persecutes you, you have to accept that if God sovereignly wanted to tear it down, he would. You don't get to blow it up. You have to figure out a way to live sufficiently beautiful lives that the government that's oppressing you and the people who are slandering you will see that they're ignorant and foolish. And listen, he says, listen, and it may not even happen until Jesus returns. And on that day, when Jesus shows up and they're facing their condemnation, they will have to say, you you got, we oppressed you. We oppressed you. We wanted to believe that you were evil, and we did, and that's it. That's what the passage says. And our desire should be not to do it vindictively, Our desire should be that when people, if we really are believing the gospel and people are ruthlessly attacking us, our feeling should be not, oh, poor me, but what are you doing to yourself? Do you remember, I mean, I don't know if you've ever read the book Crime and Punishment, my favorite book, Dostoevsky, but there's a section where Raskolnikov, the main character who kills these two women, he admits to this prostitute named Sonia that he's killed these two women. And you expect Sonia to be like really upset, like, oh my gosh, you killed two women. And what she says is, what have you done to yourself? That's the Christian view, isn't it? To, to look to the sinner with compassion, not out of self-righteousness, but say, and so that's how a Christian responds to persecution of any kind. And it's all through the Bible. Persecution is normal. And therefore, it's important to recognize, friends, that we live in an abnormal bubble in human history of religious freedom. Well, it, it's not— a, see, a lot of people think that it's a Western industrialized enlightenment thing. That that's what religious— religious freedom is all about the fact that we got out of the Thirty Years' War and then Voltaire wrote some really funny books and then we just got past the idea of taking religion too seriously and the result of that was religious freedom and that's what we enjoy today and we will in the West as long as the West endures. That is poppycock. That's not true. The United States had these rights in our laws because we are a nation founded by religiously persecuted people. We believed that those people believed that religious freedom was absolutely fundamental and they intentionally put it on the ground floor. That's not normal in human societies. And um, this is going to sound a little political for a minute, okay? But here, but I, I, listen, here's where I'm coming from. I believe that the issue of religious freedom and conscience is not a partisan issue. I do not believe it's a partisan issue, okay? So, so if your party is the one that has this wrong right now, I'm not saying switch parties because— I, because, the, you know, your party, everybody's political party is going to get stuff wrong. It doesn't mean you jump ship. You just, you just fight within the family sometimes. So listen, I'm not taking a partisan view. This should be, I believe, Christianly speaking, at least a nonpartisan issue. But it is a public issue. And we have a responsibility. I think we have a responsibility to advocate for religious freedom here and globally. And it, it is not a very sexy public issue. When you ask somebody, what is the most fundamental moral public issue of our time globally? Like, what, what is the thing that when your kids grow up, they will say, why didn't you do something about this? Why didn't you take action? Most younger people particularly— well, a lot of people be like, look, I'm just trying to raise a family. But younger people who, like, have lots of spare time— I mean, most of them are going to be like, you know, human trafficking or global slavery or things like that. And that is valid. Those, a lot of those are, are but scale-wise, 
scale-wise, they don't touch religious and conscious oppression in the world. They don't touch it. And a lot of the enslaving of people that is done in the human trafficking is, just, is done across gender, well, obviously across gender, but, uh, but across socioeconomic and religious and cultural and class and race lines so that one group will oppress another group. And so you get sex trafficking, you go, oh, sex trafficking is a problem. The problem's not sex trafficking. The problem is the rule of law protecting a per- particular group of people's freedom. The result is rape, sex trafficking, and slavery. And so by recognizing the enormous global problem of a lack of freedom of conscience and religion that exists, we can, through it, attack sex trafficking, human slavery, all these kinds of things that we all know are global problems. But we we need to recognize that this—listen, this is an issue here at home in America. This week, this week in the news, okay? Vanderbilt and SUNY Buffalo and, and three or four other schools kicking InterVarsity Christian Fellowship off their campuses because they have theological standards for leadership, right? Catholic Church, birth control issues, right? Um, Prop 8 in California. Now, let me be very clear about this. I am not arguing, I am not arguing that this is not a same-sex marriage issue, okay? So, four, three or four of the court opinions in America the Iowa one is the most clear on this, said the reason we're striking this law down is because the only reason anybody could have voted for it was because they're religious. Therefore, that vote shouldn't count according to our laws. Therefore, we're striking down the law. Now listen, I think states have the right to create same-sex marriage laws. We can vote against them if we want to. We can vote for them if we want to. That's, that's a legal issue. But what I'm saying is when a court can say you voted that way because you're a Christian, that is taking away freedom of religion and freedom of conscience. Because that means you cannot vote and you cannot act according to your conscience. Okay, so this is not a same-sex marriage issue. This is a are you allowed to think as a Christian publicly? That's the issue, okay? That may be too liberal for some of you. I'm sorry. But the fundamental religious freedom issue is, are we allowed to have a Christian conscience and vote according to it? We're supposed to be able to under our our laws. And then fourthly, there is— I don't know if you heard about this. New York City Public Schools just kicked every church out. No religious services. Well, nobody had religious services in New York City Public Schools except Christians. And they all got thrown out in spite of the millions of dollars of revenue that they, they got every year from those schools, meaning there, and they, there were no problems. And that's all just this week, okay? Now listen, I'm not trying to whip anybody up into a fervor and, oh my gosh, we got to fight those— cra-. Listen, but we got to have some discipline about it. We can't just shrug our shoulders because, listen, if we lose, if you lose, if we lose religious freedom here and freedom of conscience here, we're not going to be much good to the rest of the world. It's, it's not going to work for us to go to China and say, listen, you should not be throwing people in jail for believing in Jesus. And if they can just turn around and look at us and be like, listen, you guys don't have religious freedom. We should lose the moral high ground that fast. And so listen, I, and I believe, and I believe this is nonpartisan. I believe that if you're a Democrat and you're committed to that political ideology, you should be advocating within the family right now and saying, we're missing this one, guys. We're missing this one. And if you're a Republican, then you fight. You shoot, you lob the grenades on this one, okay? And listen, next week it could be the other way around. This is nonpartisan. This is a human issue, okay? And then we have to be involved globally in the human rights issue because, listen, that place is the most unreached and it's also the most dangerous. People are not free 
there. There's one missionary who came back. He was in one of the Islamic countries, and he was there 35 years. Ravi Zacharias told the story in one of his talks. He, he said he was leaving, and they, they didn't, hadn't built a church. 30 years he was there. They hadn't built a church. And um, this imam said to him, he said, you were here 30 years. You spent your adult life here. What have you accomplished? And his response was, you know what? Get your foot off their necks, and you'll find out what we accomplished. Um, the, the reality is, and, and even Newsweek said this, there is a correlation between communism and Islamism and religious persecution. And you can't, you just listen, guys. I, listen, I, and, here, and, here, and this is the relationship between advocating at home and abroad. If we do not advocate for the religious freedoms of Muslims here, we have no business advocating for the rights and privileges of Christians in Muslim countries abroad. Because what, what if we say, no, you can't build that mosque or whatever. We, we don't like that. But then we, here's what we're doing. We're showing all we are as a special interest group. We're just, we're Christians for Christians. That's it. We're just an interest group. And so the political party figures out how they can motivate us and puts us in their pocket. It's only when we become disinterested and sit back and be, no, this is a human issue. Humanity, part of humanity is having a freedom of conscience to believe what you're persuaded of and to act according to it. Every human being has it. So in Iran, should we advocate for the release of Christian pastors? Absolutely. But on February 13th, six Baha'i teachers were also arrested in Iran and thrown into prison. Should we say anything about that? Yes! These are humans. It is a human right to have a freedom of conscience because we are rational creatures. We believe that comes from the image of God, and some of our neighbors may not believe that. They may not believe the same reason why humans have inalienable rights, but we believe that. And they might believe that, and we have to— so Listen, only if we advocate broadly for every human being to have the right of freedom of conscience and religion do we have any right to advocate for people who are more dear to us because they're part of the family of faith. Yes, our Iranian brothers and sisters who are Christians, they are dearer to us because they're part of a family with us. We're knit together in heart. We love them because of our shared faith in Jesus. But the other people are just equally human. And if we are moral and just people, we must care about them just as much. And I fear, I fear for us that we will get advocating for Christians, which I am for. But I believe that we have to advocate for human beings because it is not a normal state for us to be free of conscience and faith. All right, I have to kind of go quick here. So, okay. Given the last three weeks, what is, how do we live a normal life of practical engagement? Right? In, in first, first Thessalonians, Paul says, make it your prayer to live a quiet life at peace. Right? That doesn't sound like being a big world changer, does it? But there is a normal Christian life that is engaged in the global realities of humanity and of the gospel. And so let me just see if I can show you a couple of these. Um, here, and so here's what, here's, what I, here's what I'd say. Here's my suggestions. One is, be a full part of High Point Church. We're a missions church. 10% of every dollar goes out globally. Um, if you want to be in part of world evangelization, all you got to do is put money in the offering 
And it, do, and it does. And as, as this church grows, the part of our budget that is sucked up by our building fund, our, like what we have to pay on our mortgage, that percentage will percentage-wise decrease. And our ability to increase the percentage even that we give to missions will grow. And so it's, it's my hope that as we move on, we will move towards higher percentages of that um, globally. And um, High Point Church is committed to that area. Nate Mirza said there's two ways to reach those people. You can go there or you can reach international college students who come here. 80% of the world's leaders will train in one of our universities. University of Wisconsin-Madison is either 17th or 18th among the top 500 universities in the world by the top five standards that I could find. That means a lot of them are coming to Madison. And therefore, we have ways that we can reach them. Now, one of the ways to do it is with Taste of Madison comes around next year. You just drive them around the city and make friends. That's it. And you can't talk about Jesus on that. We, we agreed with the University of Wisconsin. You can't, unless they specifically say, hey, hey, tell me about Jesus. You can't, but you're, you can make friends. You can make friends with them. And, and that's part of ministry. You just make friends with people because they matter. And then once you're friends, nobody can tell you what you can do and can't do in a friendship other than decency and love. Um, and so when you look at—just go out to that board and look at what we fund. We fund people in that window or working with people who've run away from that window, who could go back, they speak the language, they are those people. And we, we fund—and then about 40% goes to student ministries. And guess where all of our missionaries who are going to go to that window are mostly going to come from? Guess what? Crew. And university. They're going to be young college students who are going to be like, you know what? I'm doing it. I'm doing it. I'm going. Forget it. I'm going. Right? I mean, Jen and Mike. Jen was up here. They went to Turkey. They're thinking about going back. They were thinking about going to a year. They're like, yeah, I'm going to go for three or five. Three or five. It's people like that. And most of those people got there in our student ministries. And so we really focus on those two. The, the second is be, invest yourself in global missions, both in long-term missionaries and short-term missionaries. Here's why. Do not underestimate the effect of just having an interracial, intercultural, interpersonal, international relationship, the effect on you. It's very hard to love people you have no access to. It's just very hard for that to happen. And so my kids— have had Indian people stay with us, African people stay with us, um, people from different places, um, friends that are, were white just like us, but that live in Uganda and live on like $21,000 a year and have two biological kids and adopted two kids and they're just kind of running by the seat of their pants. And they've been in my house and they've said, listen, this is why we do it. And my kids have seen that and they inspire me. I mean, don't underestimate the effect on your spiritual life and what will happen to your kids if they see these people in your house, at your dinner table, live when they come. And it matters, okay? And what also matters is get them the heck over there and yourself. It takes access a lot of times to get it. You don't understand what persecution is like till you sit with a Christian who really is terrified of the gang because they can do anything to them. And they, they're just— you know, when I go to India, they're like, listen, we call it politics here, but it's really just gangs that get voted into office, and they can just come here and kill us, and so we just kind of are trying to figure it out. Until you sit in that building and talk to those Christians, you don't really believe that. But having access and then sending our young people and sending ourselves to these places to experience it for a short period of time, it's not really to affect them. It's to affect us. 
And this year, we're going to send a trip of teenagers to St. Thomas. We're going to send family, a fam, two family trips to Guatemala, one in June and one in January. And you can get involved. You can, the January one's open. You can sign up for it. And the people who are going, they need your support. Right? Those, I mean, those families didn't put aside another $2,800 because they're taking a parent and a kid. $1,400 each. And so when Lexi and I do our giving for the year, you know, we pull out that 10% because well, we, that's what we do, okay? I'm not preaching on tithing right now. But we just pull out and we're going to give that church. And then we pull out. Some kid's going to ask us to go to missions. And we need to have that, you know, 100 bucks for the two kids that call so we can give them something. And we need to pull out this for this. And so our, we have these giving lines so that we can support our mission friends. We've, ever since we graduated from college, we had at least one missionary that we've supported every month for at least $30, sometimes more than that. Usually we have three. Because it affects us. It's important. It's part of being, and if you don't cut that money out, it's never going to be there. It's never going to be there. And if you don't do it in advance, it, you know what's going to happen when that teenager asks you for 60 bucks to, for their, their uh, St. Thomas trip? You're going to feel put out. But if you pull that money out in January, you pull that $100, $150 out because you, you're hoping some kid's going to ask you. And, you know, whoever's first gets 80 bucks. Then you're waiting for the kid to ask you. You might have to go ask him, hey, you going to St. Thomas? Send me a letter. I want a letter. Give me a letter. Can I have one right now? Do you have one right now? And then bless them and really pray for them because it matters. It will transform that suburban kid into a, a more global person. And then lastly, um, I believe that we should be involved in advocating for religious freedom at home and abroad. I'm going to tell you right now, I, gi I give to a legal defense fund that fights for religious liberty in America every year. I think it's important. I think it's necessary. Lots of people are giving lots of money to make sure that everything else is more important legally than religious freedom, and I believe it's important to be involved in. I think, I just think it's important, and I do it, and I think that, I think it's a wise Christian thing to do, but I think that you can do things, you can write letters, you can find out where things are going on, and you can, you can do all kinds of different things in terms of advocacy, because listen, it is, it is the number one human rights issue of our generation. It has been for generations, and nobody talks about it. And you will be called ignorant and foolish and right-wing or whatever if you think that, and I apologize. Especially if the Democratic Party is your home, you're probably going to take more persecution. You're into, you are. You're going to take lots more persecution than Republicans will. And um, I know that I'm, I'm, calling you to, I'm calling you to a higher thing, because Republicans don't get— con attacked for that too much in their party. Um, but I think it's, I think it's, I think it has to be done. I think when a family fight has to happen, it has to happen. And so I'd encourage you to be bold. I'm not encouraging you to leave the family. I'm encouraging you to be bold in the family. So be part of High Point Church. We do this. Give joyfully. Um, be involved in missions yourself, both in relationship with people in long-term missions and sending people on short-term missions and going yourself. And third, I think advocating for religious freedom is part of world evangelization because if the boot of Iran came off the necks of Iranian Christians, can you imagine what would happen? What if that happened in Pakistan? What if it happened? What if it happened in China? People could just be Christians. They didn't have to keep moving from McDonald's to McDonald's to McDonald's to escape the police where they could have church. It would be amazing. It would be amazing. Um, are there kids coming back in? Yeah, there's supposed to be kids coming in right now. So, okay. So, um, we're going to bring up the Guatemala team and pray for them, okay? Kathleen's going to say a couple of words about them. 
So if you're, part, if you're one of the parents in the Guatemala team, you can come on up. If you're one of the kids going to Guatemala in this June trip, come on up. All these people are raising support. It's like a total of $30,000. A lot of people are paying a good bit of it themselves, but they'd love your support. Um, and we're doing this because we want to— you can be as young as eight and go on this trip. We're trying to show kids as young as eight what poverty looks like in one of the worst places of poverty in the world, which is this place in Guatemala that we're going. They're going to see what it looks like, the church looks like in, in that place. They're going to go to medical clinics. They're going to do five or six different things in just seven days. It's a really, really great opportunity. And um, there's going to be another one that your family may be able to go on in January. So why don't you say a couple things, and then I'll pray for us. And the worship team's already come out. Okay, great. Well, good morning, everybody. It is just so exciting that the Lord has brought this team together. We have several team members who are not with us today. Um, I'm just going to go right down the line. My family, Kevin, Emily, Chris, who is at college, and myself, Hannah and her mom, Ellen Flotmeyer, the Broom family, Megan, Brittany, and Nathan Broom, Laura and um, Brady Helwig, Robbie Pekovich, um, Casey and Rick Zinda, Lloyd and Cleo Tyndall, Nick and Abby Gibson, Carmen Angie is also going with us. And in total, there are 22 on this team that will be traveling in June. We leave on the 13th of June and we return on the 18th. And that sounds like only six days. What can you do in six days? Let me tell you, our days are very long. We do incredible things. We will do distributions of Bibles, shoes, clothing, We'll do a free medical clinic day. We will be building something, and we don't know exactly yet what we will build, but it is likely that we will be building a church that's very exciting in a community that doesn't have one. And so that's very exciting. Um, we will also be working with um, some street children in a special street um, children daycare. Um, we will be going up into the mountains. We will be doing just a variety of things every single day. Our days begin at about 7.30 and end at about 8.30, and we are in perpetual motion doing three and four different projects in each day. Additionally, we will be installing um, drip garden container systems for families so that they can raise a garden that will supply their family of eight with food for an entire year. And they will have so much surplus that they will be able to sell the surplus at the local market and then buy seeds so that they can plant again for the following year. This is, a, this is an area of the world where there are really two main food things that they eat. They eat corn and they eat beans. It's not a very balanced diet. And so Outreach for World Hope is phenomenal at coming in and helping to provide a sustainable pathway out of poverty. We're not just giving them stuff to give them stuff because that's not going to take care of a problem. But by teaching and showing and equipping them so that they can provide for themselves. That is very exciting. And we have a local pastor that we work with. His name is Lionel, and his wife Martha are with us as well. We are preaching continuously. We're sharing God's word. We travel with the four spiritual laws, and so we can share those either in Spanish or in English. And so just a variety of things. We invite you to participate with us. I believe there's a slide um, that Lisa put together showing all the different things that you could be involved in. Um, and maybe Nick talked about that. And so... Um, 
Um, anyway, the total cost for our team is $30,800. Some of our team members will self-fund, others will be um, looking for participation from our congregation to help support this. Um, there are things that can be donated, children's clothing, children's toys, beanie babies are a big, big thing. In terms of children's toys, we don't want anything that has a battery in it, we don't want anything that is a mechanical type of toy. We want basic, basic, and small, lightweight things. And um, in terms of clothing, um, children's sizes up to size 14, no winter clothing, no shorts, um, shoes, um, flip-flops, those types of things are really, really wonderful. Um, acetaminophen, all of this stuff will be on the website for our church, and so you'll be able to continuously um, keep updated um, regarding that as well. But we just thank you for praying for us as we prepare. We thank you for partnering with us. And mark your calendars for April 29th, because we will have a pancake breakfast where we will all get to share a meal together. So that's coming as yeah. well. Great. Thanks, Kathleen. Let me, let me lastly just say this. Um, our small groups are supposed to be communities of application. So a, a conversation that would really be great to have this week is, what are we going to do? Get your small group here and say, is there, what can we do to support this team, to be part of advocating for this? Just because we had our small group discussion last week at the end of it, and, we sa- and, and we, I said, what are we going to do? We had a nice little conversation, and the pudding was good, but what are we going to do? And everybody's like, yep, we should talk about that next week. <laughs> but Trisha Pinka said, she said, she said, yeah, we're gonna do something together. But you know, if everybody just did something, a lot would get done. And that's, the, that's a much bigger problem than a lack of organization. We wanna believe the problem is organization. It's not. It's that most of us don't do anything. And if everybody would just do something, a lot would get done. So let's pray for this team and we'll go. Father, um, thank you for this work that we're going to get to do. We pray, Father, that this team would not be the only people affected by this, that the people, these people that we serve in Guatemala would be affected, and that also that there would be a contagion, a, well, a spiritual one, not a biological one, please, Lord, that would come back with them and spread throughout this church such that we would be, um, we would be, a compassion in us would, in, would increase, a spiritual desire to impact others would increase, that, that our desire to help other people live and to know you would actually be a greater passion in us than some of the things that we do even in leisure and just for ourselves that are the, 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 the way courage wells up in us and the way our passions are ordered would be changed so that we would care about the world and about the people in it. Um, so Father, we, we pray that you'd work in this team, that you'd bless them, that you'd supply their needs and that you would do something among us. And I pray that as we conclude our missions month, Father, that you would help us to be a people more globally engaged, that we would be a people more interested in the whole world, that we would be, um, we would acknowledge that your body, the body of Christ, is all who believe in you everywhere, of every people, of every group, and that they should be dear to us, so that when they suffer, we suffer, and when good things happen among them, we rejoice here. We want that, Father, and we recognize that this is partly a work of discipline among us. We have to, we have to do what you tell us to, to experience some of that change, but a lot of it we recognize is your gracious work in us, and so pour out your spirit on us and change us. Help us to believe the gospel and to do these things out of joy. And we ask them in Christ's name, amen.